Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a professor tells about Upstate's new vector biocontainment lab. In addition to Lyme disease or Kowansen or Vesnal virus, we'll also be working with Zika virus, Chikungunya virus, Dengue fever virus, malaria, and of course SARS-CoV-2. A transplant surgeon discusses kidney transplants for children. The recovery usually takes about, uh, I would say, four to six weeks after kidney transplantation. And after that, usually kids are basically back to normal life. And an infectious disease doctor tells about a new injectable HIV treatment. Cabinuva is a combination of two different medications that are given once a month as an intramuscular injection into the gluteal muscles. And then patients during the interim period of time do not have to take any pills at all for HIV. All that in a visit from The Healing Muse, after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll discuss kidney transplants for children. Then, an infectious disease doctor will tell about a long-acting injectable medication for HIV. But first, we'll hear about the new Vector Biocontainment Lab and the Upstate Tick Testing Program. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Upstate recently opened a vector biocontainment lab, and today I'm pleased to be speaking about that with Dr. Saravanan Thangamani. He's a professor of microbiology and immunology, and he's known internationally for his expertise on ticks and tick-borne diseases. He's also the director of the new Upstate Vector Biocontainment Lab. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Thangamani. Um, thank you. I really appreciate having me again. Well, I'd like you to tell us about this new lab. I know it's a first-of-its-kind facility in central New York, but what is it for? So the Vector Biocontainment Lab, otherwise known as VBL, is a dedicated and integrated biocontainment facility to work with arthropods like ticks and mosquitoes in level one, level two, and level three laboratory. In addition to that, we can actually work with the BSL-3 agents. And also we have a human challenge suite so basically what what sets this apart from other facilities is that we can actually work with all these agents by infecting ticks and mosquitoes within a single umbrella facility and the agents of you know uh, zoonotic pathogens of public health threat like SARS-CoV could also be investigated within the facility so that's the flexibility we have with this facility so it won't be just diseases transmitted by Yes, I think you said arthropods, but is does that is that all insects or what does that mean? So arthropods, yes, it's um, you know not necessarily in, insects, insect like uh, arthropods like ticks and mosquitoes. So we'll be investigating with uh, diseases or disease-causing agents transmitted by mosquitoes and ticks. On top of that, we have the capacity to work with any BSL three agent, any agent of public health threat like SARS-CoV two is the timely uh, pathogen that we would like to investigate. So. Uh, in addition to Lyme disease or Kowansen or Vesnal virus, we'll also be working with, uh, you know, Zika virus, Chikungunya virus, Dengue fever virus, malaria, and of course SARS-CoV-2. Now you mentioned uh, one, two, and three level. What is what is that about? So these are different safety levels. Uh, each level has its own uh, physical containment measures and mechanical containment measures that are defined by CDC. So the BSL-3 is the highest one. So we have redundant uh, safety facilities in such a way that we will be able to safely work with the pathogen or agent for the environment and also for the users. So we always have N plus one redundant uh, safety features built in within the facility. So that's the uh, one less uh, than the BSL-4 facility containment. So different levels of safety and precautions. Exactly. And also the, the, it also is defined by the agent level. So agent level, depending on how virulent it is, how you know, pathogenic it is, how easily it could be transmissible from one human to another human, it also, that also plays a role in what kind of agents will be handled in level two and what kind of agents that will be handled in level three. And that is dictated by CDC. 
Now, what you say, is it BSL? What does that stand for? So biosafety level. Okay. One, biosafety gotcha. level two, biosafety level three. Yes. Now, one other thing you mentioned was the human challenge room, and that sounds intriguing. What is that for? So human challenge room is uh, meant to actually, you know, as the name suggests, uh, we'll be actually exposing ticks and mosquitoes on humans to investigate certain disease uh, outcomes or to uh, understand if uh, a particular vaccine or therapeutics will uh, will be preventive. It's exactly very similar to the clinical trial, but here we actually allow the mosquitoes and ticks to deliver the agents of interest. So we built in a small suite in such a way that uh, two humans can actually sit next to each other and they can put their arms into the sleeve where we will have ticks or mosquitoes ready on the other side from the facility and they, we will expose the human to a mosquito or tick for investigations. It's very similar to clinical trials. So this will help with your work on uh, learning more about how mosquitoes and ticks transmit diseases then? Exactly. So uh, this is exclusively designed for mosquito and tick form disease uh, investigations. The reason is that uh, ticks and mosquitoes, when they deliver, they actually deliver through the feeding mechanism. When they feed, when they take blood from us, and that's how they deliver the virus. So when we needle inoculate the virus or the agent, it doesn't mimic the natural transmission events. So we want to actually create an event in such a way that how the mosquitoes or ticks are transmitting disease to humans in a natural setting. Now, are scientists from other institutions able to make use of the lab? Yes, of course. I think it is open for anybody who's interested to come here personally to work inside the facility that for that we will provide the training. Uh, on the other hand, if someone is interested in actually, you know, asking us, hey, why don't you do this work for us? We'll be able to do that as well. So right now we have researchers from SUNY Albany and SUNY Buffalo interested in working with us and we have just submitted um, uh, federal research grants uh, for this purpose. Now, I wanted to ask you what's required of lab workers, the people that are going to be working there day in and day out, because photos of them show them suited up like astronauts. So, um, for anyone to work within our BSL-3 facility, they will have to go through an intensive training program. And uh, before, I mean, the basic requirement for someone to work in the facility is that they will have to wear N95 respirators or powered air purifying respirators, otherwise known as PAPR. And they will have to have two layers of gloves and a type of cover out suits. And then these are all actually one-time use. So when they, when they finish their study and they are uh, coming out of the facility, they will have to discard that, um, you know, um, <clears throat> this PPEs. So, but I would say that uh, one would actually go through an intensive training program before they can even independently work within their facility. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Saravanan Thangamani. He's the director of the new Upstate Vector Biocontainment Lab, and he's an internationally known expert on ticks and tick-borne diseases. So I wanted to ask you if you can give us an outlook for what you think the tick and mosquito season is, is going to be like in central New York for spring and summer. So the trend is going to be very similar to the past couple of years. At least I can tell past couple of years because that's, you know, since 2019, we are doing this for, you know, we are actually tracking the emergence of ticks and tick-borne diseases in New York state. Um, one thing that I would like to stress here is that we will see more ticks and importantly, we will see more disease causing agent carrying ticks introduced into new localities or counties. And that's what we are actually seeing because we now have two years worth of data that we are comparing season to season. And we are actually starting to see more, um, you know, disease causing ticks emerging in new counties. Well, I, I think if I'm uh, not mistaken, you've received more than 7,000 ticks from the community since this testing program started. Yes, you're right. So we are close to 9,000 ticks as we speak now. What can you tell us about? the ticks you've received for analysis? Are they are they mostly, I mean, we're familiar with deer ticks. Is that mostly what you're getting? Yes, absolutely. You're right. Um, majority of the ticks we got are deer ticks. However, we do get a, a good number of dog ticks and lone star ticks in addition to groundhog ticks. Uh, very rarely we get groundhog ticks, but we do get groundhog ticks. Those are the uh, ticks that transmit Powassan virus. Uh, but I must actually stress here that the data from our study shows that there is a significant increase in human exposure to ticks during the COVID-19 lockdown period. 
So what we believe is that this is directly attributed to human behavior during the COVID because people are being you know, asked to stay inside for longer period of times. And then, you know, we venture out to do gardening, yard work and trekking and walking in the woods to actually, you know, do some exercise and keep ourselves you know, healthy. That actually inadvertently exposed us or forced us to expose to ticks. And our data clearly concurs with this observation. And it's pretty impressive. Certain counties, such as Suffolk County, even Onondaga County, we see a tremendous increase in human exposure. Wow. Well, that makes sense. If we, um, you know, there wasn't much we were told to do during the pandemic, but if you could get out and hike kind of on your own or with your family unit, I think a lot of people were doing that. So let's take this time right now, because people are still getting out as they are able to remind listeners how this uh, tick collection program works. If they, how should, how should they, what should they do if they are find a tick on them when they so get back in? If a public finds a tick either on their body or crawling or attached or from their yard or from their pet, they can actually pick the tick and put in a Ziploc bag uh, with a moist paper inside. And they can go to our lab website or now we have created a new website, a standalone website, nyticks.org. Once they go there, they can click on the tick submission form and they simply complete the form, which is which will take less than three minutes of their time. And once they complete the form, a unique tick ID will be provided to them. And all they have to do is to write the tick ID on the Ziploc bag and then send to the lab with the address listed in our website as well. And the packaging instruction is also provided in our website. And as soon as we receive the tick in the lab, we will identify them, we will process them. And our hope is to get the results back to the public within five days to seven days um, from the time the tick was received in the lab. And as soon as the results are there, they can actually, you know, monitor their uh, using our mapping tool. They can monitor the tick that are present in their own county or neighborhood or in our whole state. So we update our mapping tool in a real time fashion almost on a daily basis. So just to remind people, that's N-Y-T-I-C-K-S dot O-R-G. And I know this program is for academic and research purposes only, but I'm thinking it might be scary to find that a tick you submitted carried a deadly pathogen. So just because the tick carried a specific pathogen, does that mean if you were bitten that you, that you got that pathogen? You are absolutely uh, right. It is due to the nature of the tick biology and the agent transmission timeline. So if I can give an example for the Lyme disease agent Borrelia burgdorferi, it takes about uh, 24 to 48 hours uh, to be transmitted from a tick to a human. So there is a time lapse. So if someone finds a tick and then takes the takes removes from their body within the first 24 to 48 hours, there is a very less chance for them to actually have the Lyme disease agent in their body. However, it's not the same for all the tick-borne agents. Like Powassan virus, it is transmitted readily. As soon as the tick is attached to a human body, the virus is transmitted to the human. So depending on the pathogen, it is different. So you're absolutely right that just because a tick is positive doesn't mean that the agent is transmitted to a human. How unusual is it to find a tick that is not carrying any pathogens? So nearly 36% of the ticks that we received are, they carry at least uh, one disease causing agent. And then I must tell that many of the ticks that we receive, they carry more than one tick, uh, tick one disease causing agent. I would say that nearly 7% of the ticks that we get, they actually have more than one agent actually. So a single tick bite can actually result or result in multiple disease outcomes in a human. You're working on creating an anti-tick vaccine. Can you tell us about that? So we have made significant progress in our uh, efforts to develop, uh, you know, a universal anti-tick vaccine. And uh, with the with the lab, the, with the vector biology lab that is currently up and running, we'll be able to test our efficacy um, of these some of these candidates that we have tested against uh, uh, you know, uh, tick um, against anti against tick bites basically. So it, so the idea is that we will develop some uh, develop a vaccine in such a way that uh, the ticks will not be able to feed on humans. So that's the you know umbrella idea. So we have made significant progress and we are actually working on it. At the same time, we are also uh, using the same strategy to develop a transmission blocking vaccines in such a way that even if the tick is attached to us, 
it will not be able to deliver pathogen to us. So the, like I said, the timeline of the pathogen is very important. Timeline when a pathogen is delivered to a human, like for the viruses, they are immediately transmitted. So basically, we need to develop a, a dual strategy. In addition to anti-tick vaccine, we are planning to develop a transmission blocking vaccine strategy that will be uh, preventing you know, virus transmission to humans as well. And this work is taking place in the Vector Biocontainment Lab. Exactly. Thank you so much to Dr. Saravanan Thangamani, a professor of microbiology and immunology at Upstate and the director of the new Upstate Vector Biocontainment Lab. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, children need kidney transplants for different reasons than adults. And now for some expert advice from the experts at Upstate. Dr. Nicole Brescia is a pediatric neurologist who takes care of patients with epilepsy. What should a person do if they see someone having a seizure? It's very important to remind yourself that most seizures are short and they will stop by themselves. And it's not something you have to stop the person from doing. So you have to keep that in your mind and keep yourself as calm as you can. And then you go and assist the person. So, you know, if they're, you know, shaking, they can't talk to you, you want to put them on their side and make sure their head's turned. This allows any drool or vomit to come out. You don't want the drool or vomit to get swallowed or sucked into the person's airway um, so that, you know, can cause an infection and other problems later. You want to uh, make sure that they're, you know, not hitting any sharp edges or furniture. Make sure there's no tight clothing around their neck. You don't have to put anything in their mouth. Nothing should go in between their teeth because you could chip their teeth or you could get your finger bit. And, you know, we don't want that. Um, and they're not going to swallow their tongue. And you don't need to hold them down or prevent their muscles from jerking because you could hurt their muscles or bones or make it hard for them to take good deep breaths. And then... Ideally, well, one person's, you know, putting them on their side and, you know, and watching, you know, what, and watching them, you want another person to call, you know, 911 if they've never had a seizure before. That's the reason for them to go um, to the emergency room. And the other important thing that any people could do if they see someone having seizures is to time it because the length of the seizure determines what rescue medicine, if any, they need. If a person's having a seizure for five minutes or longer, or let's say they had a seizure and they came out of it, but then they went back into having another one and never quite got back to themselves in between, that would be a reason for them to get rescue medicine. And the emergency uh, medical professionals, the EMTs, they have rescue medicine with them in the ambulance usually that they give the person to stop the seizure right away. And in the ED, we have other medications that we use um, to make the seizure shorter and to stop it. Thank you to pediatric neurologist Nicole Brescia from the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. Now back to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Around 1,800 kidney transplants in the United States each year involve children or adolescents under the age of 18, and some of those surgeries take place at Upstate University Hospital. Dr. Reza Saidi is here to talk about pediatric kidney transplants. He's an associate professor of surgery at Upstate and the chief of transplant services, and April is National Donate Life Month. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Saidi. Uh, thanks, Amber. Glad to be here. Let's start by talking about the reasons a child would require a kidney transplant. What are the most common causes of kidney failure in babies and adolescents? Yeah, the reason of uh, Kidney failure in babies and adolescents is completely different than uh, adults. And uh, as you know, in adults, the most common causes of kidney failure, which require kidney transplant, is diabetes or high blood pressure or infection, those kind of things. But in kids, most likely are uro urological problems that they can they cannot empty the bladder or kidney very well, or it's congenital diseases of the kidneys. And some kids have developmental uh, problems that they, they, their kidneys are not well developed. So it's usually not the uh, adult diseases. That no, no. Okay. completely different uh, etiology that can cause the kidney disease in kids and adolescents. Well, I was going to ask, what is the youngest age of a child who could undergo a kidney transplant? You said someone, a child could be born with a, a disease. Yes, so what actually, would it be? 
Yeah, that's a very good point. Usually, if the child born with a disease that the kidney is not well developed, at the, the kidney is not functioning, we, we would like to have the child grow a little bit to make the surgery more successful. And usually, uh, uh, the, the age limit is around uh, six years old. By the time they're six years old, they're uh, de developed enough that we can do kidney transplant in the kids. But occasionally, even in younger kids, we can do. But usually, we would like to, them to, to basically grow to and get to the age of six before we transplant. Do children ever require double kidney transplants? Uh, rarely, because majority of these kids, uh, their parents donate to them. And uh, usually the size of a parent's kidney is big and usually they don't require a double kidney transplant. But occasionally if they get the, they might be a donor, a diseased donor, a kid who died and, uh, and then the parents decide to donate the kidneys of the kid, then they can get one kidneys from a kid. But as I would say majority of the kidneys uh, come from parents and come from adults. One kidney should be enough. For life, that one yes. kidney will get them through, okay. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully for life, but you know, some of this kidney might have rejection, some issues, and some of them require retransplantation. But our goal is that they have one kidney for life. So are most of the donors, is it mostly living donor kidney transplants for children, or do you do deceased donors as well? We do both, but majority of living donors, the parents uh, step forward to donate to the kids. And also, uh, a couple of years ago, the allocation uh, of the kidneys has has changed and now the kids on the list get priority to get transplanted. That's why usually now the wait time for a kid to get the disease donor transplant is a couple months. Uh, it's not like usually the adults, it's a couple of years, but because the kids get priority, a couple of months get, get transplanted. But you, a lot of times your parents donate the, the, the kids a kidney and they can transplant it much, much faster. So children go to sort of the front, the top of the list. Yes, uh, waiting they get priority list. on the list, that's correct. Is that because their disease is more urgent than the adults? It's not because that, but the main reason is just doing the else and kids is not that easy. You know, that uh, can actually uh, have have a very bad quality of life for the kid and also have more have complication compared to adults. And we usually try to avoid doing the else and kids and give them transplant before they need dialysis. So you mentioned that you can implant an adult kidney in a in a child, I guess six and up. Um, if you implant a child sized kidney in a child, will that kidney grow like yes, a kidney? Absolutely, the, the kidney will grow. And sometimes, occasionally, they uh, put two uh, kids kidney in one adult. Sometimes we have, and the kid the, actually the kidney will grow to the normal size. Interesting. Well, um, let's talk a little bit about biological parents. Are are they always a match for their child for a kidney? Not always, but majority of the time they are a match, yeah, because there's a chance that there's uh, a 50% chance that uh, basically they have the same gene or a 25% chance that they have the gene from one parent. I would say majority of the time the parents are matched with the kids, yes. And are they necessarily the best match? Usually they're better, yeah, because ge they're genetically very close to the kid. And uh, they have more uh, uh, tissue compatibility with the kid, and the risk of rejection is less if the parents donate to them. Yes. Now, a parent though might not be able to donate for for their own uh, medical reasons or whatever. So, what about siblings or other relatives? Do, yes, do you yes, siblings turn... especially. I mean, it, I think uh, anybody uh, over the age of eighteen can donate. If the siblings over the age of eighteen, or they have other. Uh, second degree relatives, they can donate to them. And if there's nobody available, I said, they go on the list and they get priority on the list to get transplanted. And usually within a couple of months, usually uh, less than six months, kids get transplanted. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with transplant surgeon, Dr. Reza Saidi. He's an associate professor of surgery at Upstate and the chief of transplant services. We're talking about pediatric kidney transplants during April, which is National Donate Life Month. Are the transplant surgeries for kids different from the surgeries for adults? Yes, they are different because, you know, the vessels in kids are much smaller. And that's why sometimes we have uh, put this uh, transplants intra-abdominal to, 
to basically sew this kidney to bigger vessels like aorta in the abdomen. So but it takes some special skill to be able to. Yes, it's uh, technically more delicate uh, in kids, especially small kids. But in adolescents, I think it's very similar to adults. What happens to the diseased kidneys in the children? Do you, do you leave them in? You leave them with the child, or do you remove them? It depends on the situation. Majority of the time, we'll, uh, we'll leave it in the child. We don't have to remove it. But if sometimes they cause infection or some kind, the child have uh, basically. Uh, waste a lot of protein in the urine, and that can cause malnutrition. In those cases, we have to remove them. But I would say majority of the cases, we leave them in. So if you leave the kidney, the diseased kidney in there, does it still have another function that serves the body? No, it doesn't. Over time, they actually get, these kidneys get atrophied, that they're shrunken and very, very small. What is the long-term outlook for a child after a kidney transplant? What is recovery like? The recovery usually takes about, uh, I would say, four to six weeks after kidney transplantation. And after that, usually uh, kids are basically back to normal life. They go to school, they can play, and basically they have a normal life like anybody else. That first four to six weeks, are they in the hospital during that time? No, no, usually they're in hospital for, I would say, about a, a week or 10 days, something like that. And after that, they go home and we follow them closely in our transplant clinic, make sure that things okay. And uh, then uh, uh, basically after four to six weeks, they go back to normal life, normal diet, but still we follow those patients for the rest of their life. When they get to age of 18, 17 or 18, we transition their care from pediatric nephrologist to adult nephrologist. But they'll always be followed. Yes, always right. be followed. But I, I mean, these kids, uh, I wanna make sure that your audience understand, especially when they get to adolescence because uh, they're now grown up, they're good uh, and healthy. Sometimes they have a hard time to believe that they have to still to take their medications. You know, sometimes we notice that the, in adolescence uh, age, it's difficult for them to accept that you have to take this medication for the rest of their life. And sometimes we have kids that uh, refuse to take them and they can get in trouble. Are you talking about the medications that teach the body not to reject the yes, new organ? These the, yeah, these are medications to prevent rejection, yeah. So that'll be, that's a lifetime prescription. Yeah, unfortunately, that's a lifetime uh, uh, treatment that they have to receive. So a child that's had a kidney transplant, do they have a permanently compromised immune system? Are they yes, always going to be susceptible to? Yeah, they are susceptible to, for example, infection or sometimes malignancies. And that's why we have to regularly uh, follow them and work them up and make sure that everything's under control and there is no evidence of infection or malignancy developing in these kids. But usually because this kid's gonna be on prolonged period of uh, taking this medication, they're higher risk of malignancies. Interesting. Uh, are they likely to need another transplant later in life? Sometimes, yes, because uh, you know, uh, about uh, all the transplants that we do in kids, about 15, 20% of these kids will lose their graft eventually to rejection and they will require a retransplantation. I'm talking about chronic rejection. Acute rejection, you, you, we can treat successfully, but chronic rejection, usually there's no good treatment for it uh, except retransplantation. Now, if a child had a transplant because of a urological problem and, and that's solved by the transplant, that's not to say they might not develop diabetes or, or some other disease that causes them to have kidney problems? No, no they, they, they actually, uh, the risk of developing diabetes or, or high blood pressure also is present in this uh, patient population, especially some of these medications that we use in kids to prevent rejection can prone the kids to developing high blood pressure or diabetes. So they have to be careful about that as well? Yes, that's also have to be managed very carefully. That's why we have to follow this patient, as I said, for the rest of their life, because they're these are all the rest of rejection, developing high blood pressure, diabetes, infection, malignancy. You have to basically be on top of it and make sure that uh, everything's correct. And if something happened, we can uh, treat it appropriately. I want to tell you about our pediatric program. Actually, we are the only approved uh, pediatric program in central New York. And uh, we have a very active program. In the past uh, five years, we have done about uh, almost 20 pediatric programs because the you know, pediatric Kidney failure, which required transplantation, kids are not very common. And we're 
the only approved by uh, the government to do this uh, transplant in Central New York, and we have one of the best outcome in the country. We have the our one year uh, kidney and patient survival, and also five year patient and kidney survival is hundred percent. Wow, very good, very program. nice. Yeah, one of the best programs in the country, and uh, I'm very glad. I'm proud of the, our program here. Well, thank you to Dr. Reza Saidi. He's an associate professor of surgery at Upstate and the chief of transplant services. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. A new injectable medication for HIV, next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Some patients with HIV take daily pills to manage their condition, but a newly approved medication may allow some of those patients the option of a monthly injection instead. Here to talk with me about treatments for HIV is Dr. Elizabeth Asiago Reddy. She's an associate professor of medicine who specializes in infectious disease and the care of people with HIV. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Reddy. Good morning, Amber. How are you? Well, let's begin with a quick review of treatment options for people with HIV. Can you tell us how do people typically discover that they're infected with HIV? What are the symptoms? Sure. Well, that's really important because actually most people don't have symptoms for quite some time um, or they don't recognize their symptoms. So when someone first becomes infected, they may have a quote-unquote flu-like illness with fever, rash, fatigue, um, GI symptoms, that type of thing. And that can go away pretty quickly over the course of a, of a few days. Um, certainly now someone might go get COVID tested if they had symptoms like that. Um, and then once that initial infection uh, symptom set has resolved, then many people don't have any symptoms at all for years. So it's critical for people to test if they've had any risk exposures that they're concerned about. And also New York State recommends that every single person be tested at least once in their lifetime for HIV starting from age 13 on. Um, and then also if you have any new risks that you should test annually. So that's really the main way that people would find out that they have HIV is through testing. So it's a blood test, is that how that works? Correct. Typically, um, most of the tests that we're doing are blood tests. The blood tests tend to be the most highly accurate, but there are saliva tests available. Um, those ones are accurate about two to three months after an exposure, whereas the blood tests are accurate within three weeks after an exposure. Um, and a saliva test can actually be purchased at a local pharmacy, and you can do that at home as well. So that gives an additional okay. um, private option for people who prefer not to go into a clinical setting or who don't have a provider. Now, HIV is the virus that causes AIDS. Do we have medications that would prevent AIDS from developing? Absolutely. So our new paradigm for HIV treatment is to start as soon as possible after someone is diagnosed, um, even within the first day of diagnosis. That was a big shock to a lot of people when we first started thinking about it that way, but actually it's gone surprisingly well. Um, and in my experience, the patients who I've worked with are very willing to do this. Uh, it, it's a lot to take in, but what happens is that once people start treatment right away, it really keeps them engaged and it's better for their health. And we find that it's much less likely that people will be lost to follow up. So given that initial shock when someone first finds out their HIV positive diagnosis, there may be a temptation for some people to react to that by receding into the background and just saying, I can't deal with this. Um, and what happens is that when you start medication immediately, it keeps, it, it reminds people, hey, this is totally treatable, number one, I can tolerate the treatment, and now I need to do something to follow up and make sure I stay on treatment. So that's what we do now, we start, we start treatment immediately, and the typical treatment that we're starting right now is one pill once a day for the vast majority of people who are newly diagnosed with HIV, um, and those pills are incredibly well tolerated. And how well does it work to keep AIDS from developing? 
extremely well. So it's it's really rewarding to do the work that I do from the perspective of how confident I am when I meet someone who's newly diagnosed that the treatment will be effective. So certainly um, some people still test late in the course of their diagnosis. And so some people actually may already be sick with severe signs of immune deficiency at the time of diagnosis. Those individuals now, again, still have outstanding outcomes as they get treated and they recover. Um, but if people have not reached the stage where their immune system has really shown itself to be significantly weakened um, and they go ahead and start their medications, then it absolutely 100% these medications pre prevent them from developing AIDS or any other, you know, what we these days, I often have really um, moved away from talking about AIDS and just talked about signs of immune deficiency. Are there side effects from taking these medications? These days across the board, the starting medications that we have for HIV are incredibly well tolerated. I can honestly say that compared to almost any other type of medication that I prescribe these days, these are some of the best tolerated. Most of my patients starting medications literally have no symptoms of the medication. They have no toxicities, no side effects. Um, from those single pill regimens, they do really well. Um, one of the things that you brought up and that obviously we'll be talking about today is injectables. And um, it is difficult still for some people to remember to take a pill every day and or some people just really don't like the process of physically taking a pill. That's disturbing to them and um, it's difficult for them to swallow pills. Um, so there are some other options that are coming down the line. So the FDA in January approved a uh, new medication, Cabinuva. Is that how you say it? Yep. Well, what can you tell us about this medicine? So Cabinuva is an intramuscular injection. So it goes into the gluteal muscles, which are on your backside, um, which is alarming to some people, but obviously not to everyone. So it's an injectable medication um, for HIV that's made up of two different medications. Um, so we have for a long time known that a cocktail or combination of medications works best to treat HIV because uh, having a combination of medications helps to prevent the virus from developing resistance. So Cabinuva is a combination of two different medications that are given once a month as an intramuscular injection into the gluteal muscles. And then patients during the interim period of time before they come back for their next injection do not have to take any pills at all for HIV. So who is this really designed for? Is anyone with HIV a candidate for this? So at this point, the medication is approved for people who have already been suppressed on their current HIV regimen. So that means that um, the patients actually need to be stable with their HIV at the point they're starting the Cabinuva. Again, this might change in the future where we have it approved for people who are first starting medications. But at this point, um, we're looking at this treatment for people who are currently taking pills for their HIV and their HIV is well controlled. And by well controlled, we mean that their viral load is less than 50 copies per mil, which we consider to be undetectable. So additionally with the Cabinuva at this point, as you can imagine, the uh, when you're injecting something into someone that has a very long half-life, meaning that's going to last in their system for a long time, we want to make sure that they're not allergic to that medication before they get that injection, right? Because if they have any kind of allergic reaction and it's in their system for an entire month or longer, then obviously that could be very disturbing to them. Um, so what is at this point, um, Cabinuva has an, what's called an oral lead-in meaning that you would take a month of medications by pill before switching to the injectables. That allows people to make sure that they're tolerating this medication before they switch to the long acting um, so that they don't have, like I said, bad side effects with something on board for a long period of time in their body. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Elizabeth Asiago-Reddy. She's an associate professor of medicine at Upstate who specializes in infectious disease and the care of people with HIV. Now, we've talked about this new medication, Cabinuva. Are there other long-acting HIV medications on the horizon? There are. 
It's definitely a field that's moving forward. So this is the first one to be FDA approved uh, in the US. And of note, Cabanuba was previously FDA approved with a similar um, regulatory body in Europe, several European countries, as well as Canada. So they do have additional experience with Cabanuba in different locations throughout the world. But there are other studies going on. I would say the closest is, um, it is a couple of compounds that are being researched by Merck, which will be offered likely for once weekly pill therapy. So still a pill, but something that you'd only have to take once a week as opposed to taking it every day. Um, and there are also studies looking at implants, both for potentially HIV treatment as well as prevention. So there are a number of different fronts moving forward with longer acting medications. And there are some others that are in earlier stages of research as well. So I, I think it's a whole movement forward um, and it's it's a new paradigm and way of thinking about HIV treatment that might be particularly helpful to some patients who um, have either a very difficult time taking a pill every day or some patients also psychologically struggle with taking that daily pill because of how it makes them feel and reminds them of the fact that they're living with HIV and or uh, there are patients who really fear stigma from people they live with, others they're close to, and this may seem like a more private option for them to not have to have that daily pill bottle around with them. Well, I'd like to ask you about pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP. This is the medication that protects people who are HIV negative from getting HIV, right? Correct. Yes. So are these pills or do they have an injection available for PrEP? So currently the available options for PrEP, which is medication, as you said, to prevent getting HIV for people who are at high risk, currently pills are what we have. However, there is a, um, there is a study that came out within the last year that looked at cabotegravir. So as I had mentioned with Cabanuva, there are two different medications in that. Those two medications are cabotegravir and rolpivirine. And the cabotegravir component has also been looked at for PrEP as a long-acting PrEP injectable option. In the study that was done uh, in South Africa and another international study, it showed that the risk of, of acquiring HIV for people who had been randomized to the um, cabotegravir arm was significantly lower than people randomized to the pill arm resulting in actually in both cases, the data safety and monitoring board stopping those studies early because they indicated such a greater deal of protection for people randomized to the injectable arms. So the, uh, the FDA has not yet approved cabotegravir for PrEP, but it's something that may likely be on the line very soon. And the studies looked at every eight weeks rather than every month. Um, and that's something as well that may be changed for Cabanuva is that it, it may be extended to an eight week as we gather more data about it. So I think the, the critical piece um, with both sets of the long actings, both for HIV treatment as well as for HIV prevention, is that as we said, because these medications stay in the body for long periods of time, they have what's called um, a pharmacokinetic tail. What that means is that if someone stops using those injections, they still have that medication on board in their body for a fairly long period of time on the order of months to approximately a year. It's at declining levels. So the level stays in the body, but it goes down and down and down and down over time. So what that means is that if someone is no longer opting to continue with the injections, let's say, let's talk about PrEP, because I think that's where this is to me especially critical. Um, if someone has opted to take injections for PrEP and everything's going fine and they say, hey, you know what, my life has changed. I don't think I need this medication anymore. I'm going to stop. You know, I'm maybe no longer at risk for HIV at this point, so they stop. Now, that medication will stay in their system at low levels for, like I said, up to about a year. And if, again, something changes and that person is now exposed and becomes infected with HIV, there is a small risk of them becoming resistant to that medication. So that makes sense because 
Um, as we treat HIV, one critical piece is that we need to have drugs that are present in combination and at high enough levels to knock the virus out. So if you have a low level of a single medication in your system at the time you acquire HIV, there is a good chance that you could become resistant to that medication. That doesn't mean you, you can't have your HIV treated, but it does mean that it might complicate which treatment regimens are available to you. And some of the most simple and easy regimens to take may no longer be available because of drug resistance. So I think that that's one of the pieces that is kind of a warning sign for PrEP is that there needs to be very clear communication about what it means when you decide to stop these injectable medications. So it's outstanding prevention. It works especially well for the highest risk people who really have such a high risk of getting HIV that we're trying to get them through that critical period in their lives. So this was studied in South Africa and young South African women fall into that category in many cases. Um, how this will fare for, um, for PrEP in the US I think is, is still something that we're going to see over the next, I would guess, year to two years. So PrEP is still kind of relatively new. Has it been in use long enough in America for us to know whether it's having an impact on the number of cases, the number of new cases diagnosed? Yeah, that's a great question. So it um, PrEP has been available now pretty, it's been increasing since about 2014, 2015 when there was a much larger push and, and FDA approval of the common medication used for PrEP. And um, what we've seen is that the uptake of PrEP has been spottier in certain places and more vigorous in other places. So the states that have really dedicated themselves to advancing the cause of PrEP and covering it with insurance, advertising it, making sure that providers are educated about it, and those states include New York, uh, Illinois, California, those states have continued to see declining incidence of HIV. Now, there are other aspects of programs that have been put into place to try and prevent HIV cases from occurring. So can we strictly say that um, the decline in new HIV cases was prep-related? We can't say for sure, but it, it does show that, that a combined approach that includes PrEP can really result in a significant reduction in HIV incidence. So certainly we've seen that in New York. We had a three-pronged approach starting in 2014 to try and reduce new cases of HIV in New York State, and PrEP was part of that. Um, so more widespread testing, better treatment and linkage to care, and better use of PrEP were the, the major prongs of the New York State approach, and that has been very effective. So New York State was on track before COVID hit to meet uh, a lot of the benchmarks that we put into place with respect to reducing the numbers of new cases of HIV we're seeing in the state. Um, the other thing I'll say uh, um, related to PrEP is that some other locations throughout the world that have had very vigorous PrEP programs, so really uh, a lot of emphasis on PrEP, very easy access to PrEP, um, paid for by either insurance or national health plans, include the UK and Australia. And there have been uh, good studies to show that the increased use of PrEP in those areas has been directly responsible for um, part of the decreased cases that they've been seeing. So it, it does look like it's a very effective intervention, uh, but it requires the proper infrastructure and uh, advertisement awareness and follow-up. So do you have patients who are participating in a study about Cabinuva? to see if it can be given less frequently? Yes, we have just started uh, screening. So we're, we have patients who are seeing whether they're eligible for the study, and then if they are eligible, we'll go ahead and randomize them to a study that's looking at either continuing their pills, their once daily pills. Um, in this case, they have to be on a combination pill called Victarvi, that's the brand name, um, or they would switch to the Cabinuva and that would be looking at taking Cabinuva as an injectable every eight weeks as opposed to every four. We follow those patients for a year within the, within the context of the study, and then they would actually switch. They would be given the option for those who were randomized to continue on their pills. They'd be given the option to switch to the eight weekly injectables for the following year. So for the second year of the study, 
um, anyone who was doing well and wanted to carry on with the study on injectables would be able to do so. Thank you to Dr. Elizabeth Asiago Reddy, an Associate Professor of Medicine at Upstate who specializes in infectious disease and the care of people with HIV. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Jane Shapiro's latest book of poetry is called Let the Wind Push Us Across. It's published by Antrim House. She asks us to reconsider our use of the expression status quo, which grows in this short poem to dramatic heights. Prayer for the status quo. Bless the state in which we find ourselves as we are. Praise the R, the in, out, in of breath. Behold the breath, the you, the me, the IV drip, 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 and fear. Seek grace in the fear, the state in which we find ourselves here, as things are, as we are, inside this wreckage of now. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, an update on lung cancer and screening. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.